Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. You know, most of our conversations are usually fueled by news headlines or popular trends that are happening in culture, and that's because this podcast is dedicated to exploring the intersection of faith and culture so that the church might be able to learn how to both relate to and respond to the world around us with the good news of Jesus. But today's topic might surprise people uh, because upon first hearing it, it doesn't initially sound like a cultural issue at all, but really like an age-old point of contention that may only be intelligible to church theologians or, I don't know, history gurus. And so if if your interest is piqued at all, I'll go ahead and tell you that today we're going to talk about Calvinism. So Jim, can you tell our listeners why we are doing a church and culture podcast on a theological issue like Calvinism? Yeah, and I may end up regretting doing a podcast on this by the time it's over, but it does seem like a purely theological conversation and not one that has much to do with the interplay of church and culture. But there are two dynamics of church and culture that um, I find of interest and that we pursue here in this podcast, and I also pursue through my books and my, my blogs and such. The first is the interplay between church and culture. I mean, you know, the interplay, how culture influences the church and how the church interacts and influences the culture. And a significant part of that that I've devoted a lot of my life to is studying culture, understanding our context, understanding our mission field, uh, knowing the world in which we live and that lives in us. But another area of great interest of mine, and my writings have tended to uh, have the overlap of these, is the culture within church itself. Uh, What is happening within the ecosystem of the Christian church. Uh, With Calvinism, I have found it of great interest that it has left the confines of an in-house theological conversation among Christian theologians and has become something much more. Uh, As in a new definition of not simply what is considered orthodoxy, uh, but the gospel as well. And now can even serve as a litmus test for Christians, for fellowship and cooperation. Uh, it's become an increasingly defined and narrow tribe and a fairly militant one, uh, dividing churches and denominations and seminaries and agencies as usually, and, and I want to be fair here, but usually Calvinists attempting to assert themselves and their viewpoints. Uh, but that's not all. Uh, for many Calvinists, and this isn't true of all of them by any means, but, but increasingly there's more attached to the theology. Um, a very restrictive view of women in ministry, uh, elder rule in regard to the preferred form of church government, uh, and a covenantal view of church membership that sees church membership as very, very a binding, controlling, contractual, legal matter, and church discipline wielded in very strict and often authoritarian ways. Uh, and it's increasingly become something of a package of sorts which again is affecting churches. Uh, There has even been situations where a pastor has uh, all of this as their intent for a church and doesn't make it clear 
to the church that is bringing them on. Uh, then the agenda is revealed and leading to quite a bit of conflict and a lot of hurt people. So Calvinism has become an important cultural issue within the church ecosystem. Well, let's take a step back then, because I'm not sure that all of our listeners know exactly what Calvinism is, or at least to the extent that would really be helpful in tuning into today's conversation. So can you give us a primer? Like, what is Calvinism? Yes. And uh, you could have an entire seminary level course on this. And the PhD in systematic theology that I am, as well as a professor of theology that I am, would be delighted to give it. Uh, but let me see if I can simplify it and and get to the core issues. And and let me give a little bit more of a podcast length answer to this than a soundbite. Because to really understand this, we have to go back to Reformation itself. There were, there were four major um, distinctions between the reformers and their Catholic heritage that, that Protestants continue to, to share. The first distinction uh, concerned the issue of salvation. The Catholic tradition believed that justification comes through a combination of faith and good works. The reformers disagreed. They felt that justification is through faith in Christ alone. The second point of tension was the issue of religious authority. The Roman Catholic Church at that time insisted that religious authority as a sacred institution established by Jesus Christ on Peter uh, and his successors, um, the bishops of Rome. Reformation doctrine did not hold to that. They've held that all the truth necessary for faith and behavior is found in a single source, uh, which was the Bible is the written word of God. Third area of disagreement was the doctrine of the church. Catholic theology at the time of the Reformation held that the true church uh, is that sacred hierarchical and priestly institution that Jesus founded on Peter, the first pope, and the apostles, who were the first bishops. Theology of the Reformers did not understand the true church as a sacred hierarchy, but as a community of faith in which all true believers share the priestly task. And the final major area of, of division was over the subject of Christian living. Uh, the monastic way of life was thoroughly entrenched in Catholic practice and thought by the time of the Reformation. The reformers understood the essence of Christian living as serving God in your calling, whether that was in a secular life or a priestly life. There wasn't a divide there. And also then flowing from these four major dis divisions, disagreements, came what are known as the solas, uh, Latin for only. And so you had like sola scriptura, you know, scripture alone and sola fide, faith alone, and yet grace alone and, and all of these. These and the, this was the major tension point. These were the major tension points. But, but these distinctives and the solos that flowed from them um, were the limits of the uniformity in Reformation thought. Many reformers went further in their thinking or added other dynamics to their theology. But what it meant and still means to be reformed, to be historically and theologically faithful to the heart of the Reformation, those are the four marks, those four disagreements with the Roman Catholic Church at that time. Now, I say that because today, and this is part of the cultural uh, dynamic and divide, when you hear someone say that they're reformed in their thinking, uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't just mean that they embrace these four areas of disagreement with the Catholic Church, or that you embrace the various solas, like sola scriptura. For many, when they say now, I'm reformed, or I'm reformed in my thinking, or this is a reformed school, or, you know, um, it's code. It's code that they embrace the theology of one particular reformer, largely John Calvin. 
and his very specific ideas regarding election and predestination. Um, but the Reformation was a many splendored thing, politically and theologically. And many of the principal players never even met one another. In fact, John Calvin never even met the most significant figure tied to the Reformation, which was arguably Martin Luther. Uh, they never met. And what would come to be known as Lutheran ideas and thinking would be different than the Presbyterian ideas and thinking that largely flowed from Calvin. So the many differences among the reformers over issues outside of the four main concerns leveled at the Catholic Church is one reason why eventually what came out of the Reformation was not the Protestant Church, but Protestant churches, because there wasn't uniformity in thinking on a lot of these tertiary issues. Well, on to Calvin. Calvin was born in France in 1509. Uh, he was only 27 years old when he wrote the first edition of his Institutes. Uh, Calvin, at a very early age, looked around and asked a simple question. Why don't some people become Christians? And it bugged him. I mean, it plagued him. Uh, is it that they haven't heard? Well, he didn't think that could be it because he had seen people who were exposed to the gospel rejected. Was it that they didn't want to respond? Well, he thought, how could that be? I mean, who, who, who wouldn't want to respond to God? You know, like, why would you turn this down? And if God came calling, how could you on earth say no? So he concluded that the people who didn't become Christians couldn't. Couldn't. They weren't ever really called by God. Hmm. The Holy Spirit never knocked on the door of their heart in a way that, that offered them salvation. So he began to formulate that thinking into his definitions of the biblical terms, predestination and election. That instead of it being about God predestining Jesus as the means of salvation, uh, it must mean that individuals were predestined to be saved or predestined to be damned. And only if they were predestined to be saved, would they be called to Christ. This, even though the idea of a double predestination of individuals, some to heaven, some to hell, had been officially condemned by the church in the ninth century. But Calvin wanted to, to dust off the idea of predestination as not only referring to specific people being predestined by God to be saved, but that it was double, some to heaven and the rest specifically by God to hell. The heart of Calvin's ideas on predestination is that God in his sovereignty uh, has freely chosen to save some and to reject others. Not only did Calvin formulate that to explain why some didn't become Christians, you know, that kind of intellectual concern he had, but also because it ensured in his thinking, it protected in his thinking that God alone was in control, that God alone was sovereign, that there was nothing that we were doing contributing to salvation, uh, that not even individual choice uh, could be said to contribute to salvation, that that if I actually have a choice, then I'm it's it's a work and it's a works oriented salvation. His successor, Theodore Beza, carried this out to its logical conclusion, uh, saying that not only did God decide to send some to hell, but that God causes people to sin. Interesting. Uh, further, that God's decrees to save some and damn others is logically prior to his decision to create. In other words, God creates some people simply to damn them. Jacob Arminius, uh, who was formerly a student of Biza, a lot of people don't know that, broke away from this thinking and had a very different viewpoint. And he set up the disagreement between 
Calvinists and Armenians to this day, although I think you can say someone's a Calvinist, someone's an Armenian, you can give very simple definitions. There's all different shades of types of, so, of both. But denominationally, uh, Calvinism tends to mark the Presbyterian church and Armenianism tends to mark the Methodist church and others. Calvin's vision went beyond theology, theology though. Um, he went to Geneva, Switzerland, and to set up what he determined to be a model Christian community, uh, a holy commonwealth. Uh, there were strict discipline, a consistory, uh, heard moral infractions every Thursday. Uh, there were penalties and fines, even including death. Uh, between 1542 and 1546, uh, 58 people were executed. 76 were banished. Calvin's thinking is often presented, and, and it, obviously in a, this is almost in a pop way, pop theology way, but it's, it's, it's used. And so let's get it out there. It's often presented in an acrostic known as the tulip. Mm -hmm. uh, T stands for total depravity. Every aspect of the human condition is marked by sin. U stands for unconditional election. Uh, election is not a question of worth or merit. L stands for limited atonement. Jesus did not die for everybody. Uh, he died only for the elect. I stands for irresistible grace. Uh, if and when God, as I mentioned, comes knocking on the door of your heart for salvation, you cannot say no. Grace is irresistible. To be able to say no would be going against the sovereign will of God, and you can't do that. And just play that one out, because we're going to come back to that, I think, in, in importance. Um, that means if God really comes to you, you have to be saved. You can't resist, which means that if you aren't saved, God never came to you, uh, which means that God comes to some and then not to others, which means that predestination is individual and double, some to heaven, some to hell. And then P stands for perseverance of the saints. It follows that if you can't resist salvation, uh, you can't ever commit apostasy. That again would be going against God's will to have elected you to salvation. Uh, and so um, walking through Calvinism that way is simplistic, but it's a common way of presenting the essence of his thinking, which is why it is so often presented in the form of the tulip. Well, I think our listeners can already tell that you are no Calvinist, um, but I also I think we all know you well enough to know, but that it's a decision that you made after I mean, knowing as much as you do about Calvinism. So can you talk about, other than what you mentioned, or you can dive deeper into some of the points that you've already mentioned, but what is it about Calvin's theology that you just cannot sign off on? Oh, you're right. I, I'm, I'm thoroughly reformed. I'm thoroughly reformed in my thinking, but I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, and again, the reasons could fill a semester or three, <laughs> but in short, I, th I think I can give you some headlines as, as to why. Uh, again, not trying to be exhausted with these or put it in kind of an academic level, but just kind of conversationally. First, I believe that um, it overlooks and downplays the, the broad array of passages in scripture that would cast shade on a Calvinist hermeneutic the Calvinist theological hermeneutic, specifically the many whosoever will hmm. passages. I mean, those passages where it makes it quite clear that God wants everybody to be saved. Uh, this isn't universalism, obviously, meaning that everyone will be saved, but it is a declaration throughout the pages of the Bible of the heart and desire of God. Um, John three sixteen, for God so loved what? The world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. Why? So that whoever believes in him. That and so many other of the whosoever will 
type passages, seemed very clear to me that there was no sense that God determined some to heaven, some to hell on the front end. That it was, you know, all decided, it was all predetermined. The heart of God is instead uh, desiring any and all to come to faith. And 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 coupled with that are the 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 vast number of passages that just drip with the evangelistic urgency and passion of God and, and the evangelistic urgency and passion of Jesus. I mean, I mean, just take Luke 15, um, where, where Jesus was so upset that, that, they, that, that the religious leaders were upset that he was hanging out with lost people and trying to reach them, that he told not one, not two, but three straight stories to rapid fire truth into them about lost people mattering to God and that they are worth doing everything you can to reach and to serve them. And for biblical trivia folks, that's the only time that Jesus ever got so exercised that he repeated himself three times. And even when he was dying on the cross, he was still reaching out, trying to win one more. There's just an evangelistic urgency that doesn't go along with the kind of theological constructs about predestination and election that Calvin would um, put forward. A second reason is uh, the main passages, I mean, as someone who is obviously takes scripture very seriously, the main passages related to election and, and predestination, I believe, are wrongly interpreted by Calvinists. Uh, specifically, they interpret them individually. Uh, when the clear context and meaning, I, I would argue, is, is corporate in nature. That when the Bible talks about these things, it's always a corporate idea. And here's what I mean. When the Bible talks about predestination, it's not talking about individuals at all. In the Bible, predestination and election are fundamentally corporate. They are communal. What God has chosen to do is to save a people through Christ. When we accept that predestined means of salvation through Christ, we become part of his predestining, part of his elect. This is because what was predestined, what was chosen, was the way of salvation. God's predestination has to do with Christ, not with who would choose Christ. What God predestined was to save people and to save them through Jesus. That is what was predestined the means of our salvation. God predestined that there would be a saved people and that they would be saved through Jesus. Um, God made the decision to save some people and not others, yes, but by setting up Christ as the means of salvation. And when we accept that predestined means of salvation through Christ, we become part of his predestining, part of the elect, part of the chosen. Because what was predestined, what was chosen, was the way of salvation. God's predestination has to do with Christ himself, not with who would choose Christ. What God predestined was to save people and to save them through Jesus. That is what was predestined, the means of our salvation, that there would be a saved people and that they would be saved through Jesus. Think of it this way. If I were to invite you over to my house for dinner and Susan and I decided to serve you steak, you have the freedom to refuse to eat that steak. You don't have the freedom to choose turkey or ham uh, because that's not what we determined to serve you. You don't have to eat. That's your choice and your freedom, but you can't choose what you will eat. That's been decided. So you can't choose to be saved apart from Christ. That has been predetermined. That's what predestination is about. But you can choose to refuse salvation. So election is not that Bob is in and Mary is out but about whether Bob and Mary accept the predetermined means of salvation through Christ and become part of what God has elected for salvation, which is a people saved through Christ. If Bob and Mary do, then they become part of what God predestined. 
So God is predestined that a specific group of people will be saved, but it's a people. Hmm. It's a grouping. The identity of that group is simply those who chose to believe in Jesus. And again, almost all of the verses uh, on the elect and the predestined are, in fact, plural in the original Greek language uh, when, you, when you read it in the Greek. They're all referring to this corporate idea. For example, and, and in fact, one of the ones that's the most individualistic seemingly on the surface, Romans 5, where it talks about um, uh, Jacob I chose and Esau I hated. Mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, um, it's not an individual statement at all. It's a corporate statement. Paul's quoting um, Malachi, uh, the first chapter of Malachi, actually, uh, where the nations of Israel and Edom, which was Esau's nation, rather than individuals were in view. There were references to nations, uh, not people. Um, Israel was the um, elect nation. Edom had incurred the wrath of God because of their conduct toward Israel. So Paul is speaking there of the people of Jacob and Esau with particular reference to how the Edomites refused to come to Israel's aid at a time of difficulty. So this is about God's attitude toward a people that through rejection of Christ fell outside of the chosen means of mercy. See, that's just an example of what I mean by um, clear corporate understandings and, and, and interpreting it fairly by the text when it's corporate references. So with this view, you're able to uphold the passages that talk about predestination and election and not be as afraid of them, as well as all the passages that talk about whosoever will may come. Salvation is based solely upon the free sovereign choice of God, but he has chosen to give it to those who choose to come to Christ in faith. The chosenness has to do with how they entered. Uh, what was chosen was Christ as the way. So you have the weight of scripture in support of God's heart for all people to come to faith. You've got the actual passages related to predestination and election being corporate in nature, not individual. And then let me give you one last one. Um, Calvin's system of thought, I think, has a has a fatal flaw. And, and it is a system. It's a system of thought. It's a hermeneutical grid through which you read scripture. You, it's a theological grid that you then read scripture through that theological grid. And I, and I think it's, it's, it's flawed in one of its foundational presuppositions. First, let me just go ahead and say, I, I think that it's, you shouldn't have a construct through which you read scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think that's already a mistake. You let, should let scripture interpret scripture. But more to the point, Calvin's entire system of thought, and I've, I've felt this way since first reading Calvin, um, rests on the idea of irresistible grace. Mm-hmm. Everything rests on that. Um, you give Calvin that, if you were in a debate society, which unfortunately this is what this has often become to people, but if you give Calvin that, he owns you. That that's and for many that's the appeal of Calvinism, the straight line Aristotelian logic, one deduction, one assumption leading to another, very mathematical, very analytical that way, and it all begins step by logical step, I believe, with the idea of irresistible grace. The idea that if God comes to you, you can't say no. Well, the problem with that is you've got people saying no to God in the Bible. A lot. A lot. I mean, quick example. You know, Christians believe that Jesus was God himself in human form, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, uh, which means that every invitation that Jesus made, unless you have a different Christology than I have, every invitation he made was a clear call from God. Mm -hmm. An aspect of the desired will of God. So if Jesus called someone to come to him, to be in relationship with him directly and personally, according to irresistible grace, they could not say no. 
the rich young ruler did. People told Jesus no. Jesus, Jesus directly called that man to follow him. Um, and the man said no. Now, a Calvinist might say, well, that's different. We're talking about the touch of the Holy Spirit on a life after the time of Jesus. And, and, I, and I would just say, and kindly, like I sometimes would say to my theology students, I say, okay, that sounds really good, but you're making that up. <laughs> you're saying that, but you don't have a biblical basis for it. Um, you're saying that to protect a system of thought rather than actually getting that from scripture. Either God can be resisted or he can't, which is it? Um, so where does that leave God's sovereignty? Okay, if he can be resisted. Well, you see, what, what seems to be missing is the idea that God could, could have in his sovereignty willed for people to have a choice. It, it seems like such a simple idea, but could not God have sovereignly willed for us to have a choice and that our choice was part of what he willed us to be able to have? And so therefore it doesn't ever go against his will or his sovereignty. That choosing to follow or not follow, accept or reject is something made within his sovereign will. He sovereignly willed for us to have that choice, which helps explain the fact that whether we like it or not, uh, you do have apostasy in the Bible. I can't get away from that. Paul wrote about it to Timothy. He even named two men who had committed apostasy. Uh, the author of Hebrews warns against apostasy. Peter warned against his Christ followers against committing apostasy. Jesus even said that apostasy is going to become more and more common as the end of time nears. The biblical idea is that no one can take your salvation away from you against your will. But that doesn't mean you can't freely surrender it yourself. There's a difference. So for me, because of the passages speaking to the idea of anyone being able to come to God and God's desire for anyone to come, the passages of election being corporate in nature, uh, the problem with thinking that grace is, is irresistible and having that be a logical construct from which you begin and you read all of scripture through just leads me away from Calvinism. Uh, now, if, if people want to go more in depth on the corporate understanding of election, there's a wonderful book by William Klein uh, called The New Chosen People that uh, we can put in the show notes. Also, if people are familiar with the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, uh, who I think makes the corporate view of election in the biblical writings quite well. And in fact, he has a masterful five minute, it's blindingly, irritatingly fast and complete and wonderful, uh, a five minute exegetical response to how all the major uh, passages in the New Testament on election predestination are corporate in nature and it's on YouTube. Uh, and we'll put that in the show notes too. And from a wider theological level, you know, if you're interested, I think Roger Olson has probably written the definitive work on non-Calvinist theology of a, that might be drawing more from an Armenian standpoint. Um, and so those are some of the hmm. places that people could go look further. So all, all to say, you just have a few minor points of disagreement. With <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, let me go back to something you mentioned at the top of the podcast, because you talked about how Calvinism isn't just a set of beliefs. It often, at least nowadays, is expressed as part of a package deal. So can you talk a little bit about like, what is culturally part of that package in relation to the church? Like what other cultural issues are a part of that? Yeah. And I think this is particularly weird as head of late. And, and again, I want to be really clear. This is, these are what I'm getting ready to say is not true of every Calvinist, but there is a growing correlation that I, I personally find concerning. And so do many Calvinists that I don't find it it concerning this package. But here, here's what comes to mind. First, a view of women in ministry 
that would not simply reject them serving pastorally, but really as teachers or leaders in almost any capacity. Uh, so um, this is what Beth Moore and others ran into with the Southern Baptist Convention. And I've heard uh, many, I've heard Calvinists say that not only is Calvinism the gospel, that if you're not a Calvinist, you don't even believe the gospel, which I've, which forgive me, is, is just um, disingenuous and irresponsible. But that the women of the, the role of women in ministry is now a first order gospel issue. Hmm. And, and I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I simply disagree. Um, so that's a culturally concerning issue. And, and, and again, I, I, I don't want to point fingers, but I, I do pick up under the theology of certain aspects of some people, the way they put forward complementarianism, I, I, I sense a misogyny that is altering a fair reading of the scriptures. But does that reflect Calvin's perspective towards women? Well, it, what I meant by, well, it, it reflects what is often marked by what's called the neo-Calvinists. They, they have all these kind of conflated together. That's what I'm, I'm saying, that along with this often comes this view of women in ministry. Another issue that I, I think seems to be packaged with it or part of it is this um, view of church government, mm. uh, um, that churches that were, and, and here's how I've seen this played out, Churches that were congregationally based are led to a ruling elder form of government, um, which has always marked the Presbyterian church, but it is being more widely embraced and, and, and I'm afraid is a way of leading churches almost against their will. Um, it's one thing to be elder based with, with good, clear conscience, and that's what the people want. It's another one that's inflicted on you, and it's not what you want. Um, and in the elder rule, what the appointed elders say goes. And along with that is a view of church membership and subsequently church discipline that I've seen in some quarters is really harsh. Um, again, this isn't true across the board, but I, I've run across it enough that there's a, a pattern. And, and, and again, let me, let me play out the pattern that I've seen. And, I, and I've just had a front row seat to this too many times for it to not becoming um, um, something that is, is almost like a type. Uh, a, past, a church is looking for a pastor and a pastoral candidate downplays his Calvinistic moorings and his view of women in ministry and elder rule and all these other things, kind of downplays that because that's not the history of this particular church. But once on board, he, he goes to work on the church to redo its constitution and its bylaws and to go from congregational rule to elder rule and a stronger role of the pastor. And he handpicks elders in light of his theological and ecclesiastical vision. The church is then transformed into this new model Everyone is then asked to re-up their membership and sign a covenantal agreement to abide by the elders. Anyone who speaks out against any of this is subject to church discipline. And when they try to just leave the church, they are even told they can't do that because their membership was a legally binding contract. I've seen this play out over and over again with just a trail of bodies behind it. Now, again, I know of people who espouse Calvinist theology who abhor what I just described as much as anyone. But it is a pattern and it's gotten so pronounced in recent years. And you know this, that even here at Mac, we stopped having anyone sign a membership covenant because it was being so abused by other churches around the nation and around the world. Literally, the, the, the blogosphere was just lit up by people saying, if you go to a church that asks you to sign a membership covenant, run for the hills because it's so dysfunctional and toxic and how it's being used against people. So. That's some of the stuff that comes to mind in terms of wider cultural appendages to some of this. 
and I would say largely it's it's issues related to women and and what has proven to be in some cases very toxic church cultures in terms of leadership. Now I know like for people like you and me, I mean, and, and so many other Christians who just love the church and are rooting for the church, like hearing stuff like this is you know, makes us sick to our stomach, but I can't even imagine, maybe you could shed some light into how would an unchurched person think about this or would, I mean, do they, would they be thinking about this at all? Or how would they maybe experience some of these beliefs that um, have been attached to Calvinism? Well, as you know, here at Mac, 70% of our total growth comes from people who are previously unchurched. Mm -hmm. So almost all that we do is keep our fingers on the pulse, whether we, you know, want to or not on, on unchurch attitudes and I, and, and how they feel about Calvinism and other beliefs attached to it is, is, is no secret. I can answer this very, very directly. Um, it's repugnant to them. It, it's not attractive at all. Now, let me say that really quickly, just because an unchurched person doesn't like something theologically or some aspect of Christian culture doesn't mean they're right. And, and whatever that particular Christian idea is wrong. Sure. But in this case, their concern is very specific. Uh, and, and what it tends to is to fall into the critiques that have been lodged against the Christian faith by Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and those neo-atheists and the whole idea that God is a moral monster. Uh, they would say that if God is the way Calvin describes, they want nothing to do with that God. You know, if, if the floor of hell is covered with the footprints of babies who died and were not part of the elect, give me another God. Mm -hmm. Um, now, Calvinists would want to talk about that way of describing their theology. One would want to talk to them about that attitude, I'm sure, but they would have to talk to them about it because for them, it's like, but you're telling me God creates some people just to damn them. And I have, I, I'm, you're gonna have to help me process that with this being a God um, of love. And they would also pick up more than we realize. I, I really do believe the unchurched, uh, the average church person is not aware of how much the unchurched community is aware of toxic church cultures. And what they would see is almost a cult-like authority and control over members. When a church splits and fusses and fights and people leave and, and um, the unchurched community is aware of it. And they're aware of it a lot more than we think. But fairly or not, okay, the reputation of Calvinism among the unchurched and what they think they know about its theology uh, is neither winsome or compelling. Well, so what is the way forward, do you think, um, with this cultural and theological divide? Well, as much as I've been open and transparent about my own views related to Calvinism, which, you know, I, I, I feel an obligation to be open and transparent about it. Um, but what I don't think is fair is for me or anyone else to be hostile toward individuals who hold the Calvinist ideas. Um, you notice that I, I have not named any names, mm -hmm. gone after any uh, any particular institutions by name or anything else. We can disagree. But what I want to say is let's quit making it a test for fellowship. Let's quit making it a test of whether or not someone is actually a Christian. And here's where I'd really like to challenge my, my, my Calvinist brothers and sisters, because again, let me just speak as someone who's been in church leadership for nearly four decades, professor of theology, president of a seminary. I've had a bird's eye view on a lot of stuff. And I'll be really candid here. I don't pick up on animosity flowing toward Calvinists as much as from Calvinists toward non-Calvinists. Uh, among some in the Calvinist community, there is a, a militant, take no 
prisoners. If you're not with us, you're against us. If you're not, you know, you're not true Christians, you're not Orthodox, you don't believe the gospel kind of mentality. I will tell this story and, and, and I'll, I'll couch it in a way that um, doesn't reveal. When, when I was inaugurated as president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, a school which at the time did have an entirely Calvinist-oriented theological faculty, I invited a friend of mine who was also head of a seminary to speak as part of the ceremonies. He was a Calvinist um, and, 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 um, and had written widely on that. We were very good friends. And, uh, and he graciously said that he would be happy to, to serve. A third president called my friend on the phone, and he was also a Calvinist, and said, how can you go and support the enemy? Apparently, I was the enemy because I wasn't a Calvinist, and my entire presidency needed to be seen as an act of war and something to be fought. My friend told his fellow Calvinist friend, um, you should be ashamed of yourself. And, uh, but that in enemy mentality is just only too alive and well, and it's wrong. It's wrong. We need to quit being so contentious about this. And, 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 and that's one of the reasons why I welcome this, this particular podcast, because at my age and, and at this stage in the Christian world, I think we just need to be more outspoken about it. And we need to quit being so militant about it. We need to have some humility about it. And, um, and I, you know, I'll just go ahead and say right now, for the record, I could be totally wrong on everything that I, my convictions are to this point. I could be wrong. And, and, um, um, and there's little doubt that the Bible speaks about election and predestination and depravity and atonement and sovereignty and security, but, and thinking Christians have and can define those terms in various ways. Uh, classic Calvinism, classic Arminianism offer two contrasting viewpoints. On Calvin's side, you've got such luminaries as B.B. Warfield and J. Gresham Machen and Charles Spurgeon. Uh, on the Armenian side, you've got C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham, John Wesley, me. Um, not that I'm in that category. <laughs> I couldn't tie their shoes. But, um, but it's, it's not a test of orthodoxy. The agenda for which we exist, nor should it be the basis of our community. I mentioned Wesley. Let me just tell you this one story. He was the founder of Methodism and probably the single greatest proponent, one of the greatest proponents of Armenian theology. Um, he and a man uh, uh, by the name of George, George Whitfield, who was, a, and Whitfield was a staunch Calvinist, went on to become the two most famous Christian evangelists of their day. And Wesley and Whitfield were old college friends. They had both attended Oxford and they both felt called into full-time vocational ministry and the same one to boot, to travel and speak evangelistically through these large outdoor gatherings. Early on, their ministries ran on parallel tracks with both enjoying wide acclaim. In fact, it was Whitfield who encouraged Wesley to begin his famed outdoor preaching. But they soon grew apart theologically. And Wesley was Armenianism and Whitfield uh, as a Calvinist. But they remained friends, warm, supportive, even though they disagreed with each other profoundly. Well, when Whitfield died, Whitfield died before Wesley. Wesley was asked if he expected to see his old friend in heaven. The person asking the question expected Wesley and was kind of hoping Wesley would make a snide remark or to reveal division or a throw a stone on Whitfield's Calvinism as being wrong. And Wesley's reply took the reporter by surprise. He said, no, I won't see him in heaven. 
he'll be so near the throne of God that men like me will never even get a glimpse of him. Hmm. That's the spirit I'd like to see more of us try to emulate. Hmm. I love that. That's a perfect way to end today's episode too. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. Um, maybe a, a little bit unexpected, but I think as you continued to, to, I don't know, explain a little bit more about Calvinism, what's going on. This has been a really needed one. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you guys for listening. And we hope that you'll join us again next week.